Good morning, Austin Oaks Church. Pastor Brandon here. I want to say thanks for letting us into your home this morning. We take that as a great honor. We're a church that strives to be simply about Jesus. We want to help people meet, know, and follow him. That's who we are as a church. Um, we are bummed. I am truly bummed that I'm not preaching to you live this morning in a facility, in a building, because we had this plan July 12 to do it, but we want to be safe, smart, and gospel-driven, so we decided to postpone that. Okay, so again, August 2nd is when we're planning on reopening our facility as of today. That's the goal. But I want to encourage you to take advantage of our Thursday evenings uh, prayer and worship season. Okay, we, we're doing in July a month of prayer. Our heartbeat in this month is to be fasting, to be praying, to be asking the Lord to search our hearts, to prepare us for what he has. And I believe, I truly do, I believe that God has something in store for us as a church, not just Austin Oaks, but his church, general, speaking across the world. And we're praying for times of renewal and refreshing to happen, and we want to encourage you to be part of that. So Thursday evenings, 7.30 p.m. in our courtyard, okay? Big deal. I believe that this is probably one of the most important things we will do this month of July is to be coming together, fasting and praying, seeking the Lord and asking his spirit to move in our time. OK, so join us on that. Now, what we want to do this morning is we're going to continue in this series, um, Awake, O Sleeper, and we're going to be diving into Ephesians chapter two. But before we get into that this morning, I want to share with you um, a fine art that I mastered when I was in college. When I was in high school and middle school, right, there was a certain unspoken dress code. You couldn't wear baseball hats in class. But when I got to college, I realized, oh my goodness, that dress code thing is totally out the window. You can wear baseball caps to class, which I discovered is the perfect tool to cover up napping. I mean, I mastered this, okay? At least I thought I did. Like I would take the hat and I would lower it down and I would like, you know, nicely put my head down and I would hold a pencil in my hand and I would just like this. I got my paper here and my book here and I would just do like this. And I thought I nailed it. Like there's no way the teacher would know I'm actually sleeping through the whole class. But really, who am I kidding? It's kind of like um, you folks out there trying to not nap during the sermon. Trust me, I see you. Even though right now you're at your home, I see you, okay? I know it, I know it, okay? But nonetheless, I remember one day, it, it was music theory, okay? I, music theory, I, I love music, but music theory was a tough class to sit through, especially at 8 a.m. An 8 a.m. music theory class for a college student was painful. It was February and it's Minnesota, it's freezing cold, you know, so I was all nice and bundled up, nice and warm. The classroom was really warm, so it felt like you were wearing this warm blanket. And I, and I usually sit in the back row because I want to try to nap. But this one class, this one morning, I, I, I promise you, I wasn't trying to nap, but I did the old thing where I, I kind of had my hand down, I had my cap on, and I was trying to stay awake, okay? And I believe I was awake the whole time. You ever have that moment when like someone around you says you're actually sleeping, but you, you, you believe that you're awake? Like you, you sort of hear things, but really you're like, you're not awake. All I remember was my professor saying, Brandon, Brandon, just saying my name over and over and over and over. And also what I heard last was, are you okay? And I, and I woke up, I like jumped up, I was like, yeah, what? Okay, you know, and I was like, what? And he's like, you were snoring and your eyelids were rolling in the back of your head. And I was like, no, I wasn't. I was awake the whole time. I can tell you everything you just said, which of course I couldn't at all. Have you ever had that? Like spouses, husbands, you ever have that moment when you're laying in bed and all of a sudden the chit-chat engine turns on and your spouse, your wife, and she just wants to start talking and you try everything in your power to stay awake and, and maybe you start to doze off, but you are convinced you are awake, but she knows otherwise because you're breathing heavy, maybe twitching, right? You ever have that moment? Like I remember one time in a prayer meeting in Romania, and uh, I'm not sure if any of those folks who are with me on that trip are gonna be watching this or not, but like, at this prayer meeting, I mean, we were struggling with jet lag. We were working hard and serving hard for days on end. And we had a, a, a prayer night, just our team. And um, apparently, I, 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 I'm telling you, I'm still convinced that they're lying. And I was right. Apparently, I was snoring extremely loud in the middle of that prayer meeting. But I was convinced. And I, I, I still, I, I'm still convinced I was right. Because I remember hearing what they were saying. But apparently, on the outside, I was very much asleep, but I felt like I was very much present. 
That's the statement I want, to, want you to sit in your mind this morning. Present but absent. It's that moment when you think you are awake, you're present, you're intentional, but you might not be. Right? A lot of times we use that as, as an excuse. And I wonder, okay, I wonder if this could be why, um, or at least how the world explains why there's evil. We're present but absent. Like, is this the reason why there's certain economic problems in our world, like inflation, unemployment, rising debt, hunger, poverty? Is it the reason why there's so much social conflict and strife like racism, tribalism, class struggles, political animosity, and a disintegration of the family? Is, it because the, is this the reason why our standards of morality seem just to be getting weaker and weaker? Why we tend to tolerate violence more? Dishonesty? Sexual promiscuity? Etc. You see, the culture around us and if we were to be honest, we at one time agreed with this, right? The culture around us is convinced that you aren't the problem, right? Like just in, in the first person, I'm not the problem. Like I'm present, but I'm absent. Like I, I don't have anything to do with this. Like I'm not perfect, but I'm not the problem. It's kind of like me at the prayer meeting. I swear I was praying, but I really wasn't. I was sleeping. And all of a sudden I start to make the excuses, it's not me, it's them. It's not me, it's them. I'm here, I'm alive, but it's not me. I'm not the problem. I'm basically good. I'm not evil. I'm not really contributing to the problem of evil. Now this cultural thought, it flows from two prevalent thinkings, like two prevalent ideologies that have been alive and well from the very beginning of time. And it seems to be only getting more and more entrenched in our culture. And here's the deal, they are lies. They are myths that we bought into and have become convinced of. The first thought is this. We are mostly good, but from time to time we get confused and sidetracked. We are mostly good. Carl Rogers, a popular psychologist back in the day, his philosophy basically said this, that we are basically good, and our main problem is that we have lost touch with our inner goodness. And it's the oppressive and distorting social structures that have obscured our inner goodness. And when I read that philosophy, it made me ask this question where I wanted to ask him, Mr. Rogers, Mr. Carl, who created those oppressive and social structures that you say oppress and push away this inner goodness that we had? Isn't it us? The second thought that our culture tends to believe and explains why there's evil is simply this. It's not me, it's them. It's not me, it's them. That really is kind of the narrative that's being spun out there right now. We don't like to look at ourselves. We don't want to face the reality of the evil in our own hearts. We just like to deflect. We like to point outwards. It's those people. It's that group. It's that person. It's that political party. It's that social structure. It's not me. It's not my group. It's not my thought. It's not my family. I mean, I get it. I'm not perfect, but I'm not the problem. The problem are those who are unlike me. The problem are like those who are unlike my group. It's those conservatives. It's those liberals. That's the thought of being present but absent. It's like, I'm here, but it's not me. It's not me. Folks, this is human nature. Human nature loves to point the blame, loves to point the finger to other things or other people, but never really like to admit what's really true right here. Our heart. That's what Ephesians 2 is going to do for us this morning. You see, we're going to go through Ephesians chapter 2, and my original plan was to go through verses 1 through 10. But as I was prepping and praying and writing this message, I only got through the first three verses. And I think there's a reason for that is because we love to skip the bad news. But we need to slow down and understand this, this, this story, this teaching, this reality that the Bible gives us before we can truly appreciate the good news, before we can truly appreciate the love of God. We have to understand the problem. We have to understand the core, the reason why there's evil now, and what do we do about it? 
If we were to look at this, okay, and here's the deal. When we look at this, we're not going to say present but absent. What we're going to see, the way the Bible talks about this, and the way the Bible thinks about evil and why there's evil in our, in our lives is because it's this. You are present, right? You are present, meaning you're mentally, physically, and emotionally alive. You, if your heart is beating and you're breathing, you are present, but you're dead. You're present, but you're dead. You're spiritually dead. Your soul is dead. You're separated from God. That's the teaching we need to understand. So let's look at this. Ephesians chapter 2. And I'm just going to land here on verse 1 for a bit. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. I want us to focus on those three words. You were dead. This is in direct conflict with the way our culture and our world thinks about itself. It's not me, it's them. The Bible says, hold up, there is no them, there's only you. There's only me. This, this becomes very individualistic. I am dead. I'm the problem. Evil is in here. It's not them. I can't look at them. I got to look here. And when we look at this, Paul is specifically speaking to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. But what we're going to see in a few verses is that he starts to talk about all of humanity. So basically we just say this you, who is the you? It's every single person. It's every single person who's ever breathed, whose heart is ever beaten. This is all humanity for all time while here on this earth. You were dead. Don't look at other people, but look at you. There is no them. There's only me here. In other words, there's really only one category of people outside of Jesus Christ. Sinners. Dead people. We don't like to talk about this. We really don't, especially in the heightened humanism. The ideology of humanism is just like, we're great, we're good, we can handle things. Now, before I go any further, I want you to understand, yes, Paul is talking in the past tense. He's speaking to those who have placed their faith in Jesus, who received the gift of life by his grace, right? He's speaking to them, but he's letting them know this is what your life was like before Jesus, which also means those of you in the like those of you watching and those in the world who aren't followers of Jesus they are still dead this is the this is the issue this word dead it challenges culture to its core because we believe the world believes we are inherently good and that we do bad things on occasions we're not evil we're basically good we're surely not spiritually dead I want to challenge you for a moment. Think about world history. Just go one hour ago all the way back to the beginning of time. Which one is more true? That we are inherently good or inherently selfish? Right? What does history tell us? Do we tend to be better people? Or does world history tell us that we are more prone to selfishness? where we tend to elevate ourselves or to elevate one's group higher than another. It's very easy to recognize that we live in an evil world, that evil exists. It's really easy to do that. And it's extremely easy to go, it's not me though. But we got to understand, Scripture's clear, you were dead. If you are a follower of Jesus, you were dead. Now you are alive. But if Jesus isn't part of your life right now, listen, you are still dead. The world around us is spiritually dead, even though they are present. Yes, mentally present, physically present, emotionally present, and they're able to do some good things. That's because they're created in the image of God. This is not a statement saying that humanity is worthless or has no value. Of course we have worth. Of course we have value. So much so that God is telling us this and to say, here's what I've done because you were dead. We just got to understand 
the reality of our depravity. We got to understand how pervasive this issue is. We are not inherently good. That is just simply not true. We are inherently selfish. And because we're dead, that means we're alienated. We are completely separated from God. We have no relationship with God. And that is basically, in its, in its most pure form, a definition of hell. And because of this, we have distorted relationships with each other. And we are powerless to change any of this. And we are constantly pulled into the pit of destruction. Eternal life, the life we were created for, is to be in this relationship with God, to have fellowship with God. Jesus even said that in John 17, that this is eternal life, that they would know you. Knowing God, oneness with God, spiritual death is the separation that comes as a result of sin. And so therefore, there's two worlds, two spheres of influence. Sin and Jesus. And it gets even more defined as we continue to read this. Paul tells us in Romans that the wages of sin is death. And that's what Paul's starting to say here too. It's like, listen, in verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Trespasses are basically the actions that you know are crossing a boundary. The things that you know are wrong. You, you do them. You step over the line. And it's not just like an actual action. It's also thoughts. It's a breaking of a law or even breaking God's law. Stealing, lying, right? I mean, we're, we're just go down the Ten Commandments. We, we've all surely done some of that. We all know that. We're not perfect. That means we've trespassed. We've broken sin. We were rebels. But not only that, we're dead because of the sins. Sin is a condition. It means that we, we've fallen short of a standard. Sin, like, like we we, we got to be careful when we just say, oh, you know, sin is just always these actions. Yes, it is. It's part of trespasses. But if we say that, it's like, yeah, you know, I'm basically good, but I sin on occasion. No, no, you got to understand sin in its basic meaning means you've fallen short of a standard. It's a condition. It's, it's a definition basically of saying you're dead. So what we see here, you're dead in the trespasses and sins is basically another way of Paul saying you're a rebel and you're a failure. Yippee. Sounds like fun. We don't want to talk about this. We'd rather ignore it. We'd rather look around and point the finger of all the other things. But the Bible's clear. You're present, but you're dead. We're sinful. We are not inherently good. We are inherently selfish. I learned this very quickly by having kids. Every single kid, all three of our kids, now, maybe I'm just like saying I'm a product of my own things. Like, it's not me, it's them. Like, they didn't learn this from us. But I'm telling you, like, like two years old, like our kids would learn immediately how to be selfish. Like, like we, didn't, we didn't send them to sin camp. Like, we didn't take them to, in classes how to be selfish. I mean, I really hope, and I believe this, Chris and I don't run around the house grabbing things and yelling, it's mine. Like, like we don't teach our kids how to be mean to each other. It's just in their nature. Like they don't have to learn it. We have to teach them almost how to be good. We don't have to teach them how to be selfish. They just naturally know how to be selfish, right? We are inherently selfish. This is the result of being spiritually dead. And that selfishness just continues to give birth to more and more and more evil and left unchecked. We see great atrocities. This selfishness enslaves us. We, are, we have been enslaved to three things specifically that we see in this text. Okay, Ephesians 2, 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked. And that word walked means the way you lived. 
your behavior, the what influenced you, the way you thought, okay, what controlled everything in your life. And because of this, you were enslaved to three things, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, in other words, Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body in the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Because we were dead, because some of us out there still, you're still dead, you're enslaved. Every single one of us were enslaved at one point to these things, to these things that controlled our lives. The world, the devil, and the passions of the flesh. Think about it this way. The world is the whole social value system. And this social value system, no matter what culture you find yourself in, is in direct opposition to the kingdom of God. Culture, the world, is a pervasive influence. Just look at what controls and shapes the minds of people. Media, popular culture, hashtags, political influence, and political structures. These create this cultural bondage, and all of it is cloaked in this illusion of freedom. If we got this, we'd be good. If we moved in this direction, we'd be good. If we did this, we'd be good. And now, listen, I'm not saying we don't fight for those things. We don't fight for good. Absolutely, we do. But we got to go deeper. We got to understand the real issue. The world systems is in direct opposition to the kingdom of God. And when you realize this, when you realize that we are a self-seeking people that have created self-seeking societies, and then you discover who's the ruler that's driving it all. And that's the prince of the power of the air. That is Satan. That is the devil. He has authority over this. He's ruling the world. And here's the part that is so hard to admit. Okay? It is absolutely blunt and it's absolutely sobering. It's not a fun conversation, but it's necessary. The spirit that is at work in this world is the influence of Satan. It's an impersonal force or mood or attitude that is working and influencing and persuading humanity. And its number one goal is complete destruction. Satan, the demonic forces, hates you because God loves you. You were created in God's image. And the core of Satan's rebellion is two words, I will. That is the very core of his movement, I will. In Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 through 14, we see this. You said in your heart, and this is speaking of Satan, you said in your heart, look at all the times the word I will shows up, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Now, granted, you might not have the same aspirations as Satan here, but you are still enslaved in the I will rebellion. Selfishness. It's about me. I will do this. I will get this. I will think this. And it's revealed. To, to, to realize his influence in your life is revealed in the passions of the body and of the mind. We're enslaved to the pervasive social value system in our world. We're enslaved to it. We get caught up in it. It influences us. We're enslaved to the prince of the air, to Satan. And we're enslaved to the passions of the flesh and the minds. All forms of self-confidence, all the forms of pride. We take our pride in our ancestry or our, our race or religion and righteousness. And, and a lot of times we think we're better than others because of these other things. Well, those are all part of the passions of the flesh and the mind. Wherever self rears up, there is flesh. 
this ingrained self-centeredness is an absolute horrible bondage. If Jesus saved you, these are in the past. And we have to be reminded of what we've been saved from, church. We have to remind ourselves of these things. But not only that, when we look at the world, as we're going to see in Ephesians, that the battle in this world is not against flesh and blood, against the powers and principalities in the air that have blinded the minds of all people so that they wouldn't see God. Even for you uh, out there who are looking for answers as to what's happening in society, maybe the church has something to offer. Listen, this is why everything is happening in this world is because every single person is dead spiritually. We are not inherently good. We are inherently selfish. We have to understand this. And because of this rebellious nature, this is a, a, a Hebrew idiom um, kind of idea when it talks about the sons of disobedience. It, it's just a description. It's like you, you have no other option. You are children of Satan if you follow in the same footsteps. You're living out the same way that he lived. Now the hardest part that people struggle with here is verse 3. Or it says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Here it is. This is where people struggle. And were by nature children of wrath. This is where I hear from a lot of people going, I knew it. I knew that God wasn't loving. Or they have a hard time reconciling, like, how can God be loving and be wrathful? So I, I want to talk about this for a moment to help us understand the wrath of God. And when it says children of wrath, again, that's just a little Hebrew symbolistic picture of just saying, this is just the way you live. This is, this is your nature. You, you, we, we carry original sin. The sin of Adam is part of who we are. There is pervasive depravity inside of us. We are dead, and dead people can do nothing positive. They can't save themselves. They can't make themselves alive. They can't resurrect themselves. Right? That's human nature. And because of that, we are under God's wrath. Now, listen. God's wrath needs to be understood at the same time as of understanding God's love. God's wrath is not like our wrath at all, and praise God for that. Our wrath tends to be so um, intricately connected to a bad temper, to a situation that makes me mad. And it's not always predictable. We tend to fly off the handle, but God's wrath is not a bad temper. God's wrath isn't just because he's flying off the handle at any given moment. No, his wrath is in spite. It's not malice. It's not animosity. It's not vengeance. It's not revenge. It's not impersonal. It's not arbitrary. Absolutely not. God's wrath is 100% a reaction to evil. If God is love, he has to be a God of wrath. If, if God wasn't wrathful, I don't know if we would really want to follow this God because that would mean a few things. That would mean that God would be completely indifferent to evil. He would be completely indifferent to injustice and wrongdoing and sin. Him, it would mean that he would tolerate it or worse yet, it would mean he would compromise with evil. But because God is righteous and his righteousness is perfect and he is holy and God is love, his wrath is completely predictable and it's completely consistent. Anytime he encounters evil, anytime his wrath has to come. And we honestly, to be honest, this is hard and I know I'm going to lose some of you at this moment. We should thank God for his wrath. God will always act the same way towards evil. He will never tolerate it and he will never compromise it. 
without God's moral consistency or his moral constancy, listen, we could never have peace with God. We would never know if we did something and all of a sudden he's going to fly off the handle. We would never know how he would feel about the situation or that situation. We know exactly how God feels. How does God feel about the evil of racism? We know. He hates it. And his wrath is over it. 100%. And God's desire is to redeem it and reconcile it and move towards peace. And that's what we're going to discover in Ephesians 2. Is how through the gospel, through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection and ascension, he makes people, he takes the Jew and the Gentile into one new humanity, tearing down the wall of hostility. But how can a loving God get angry? I mean, I, 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 mean, I, I can't tell you how many conversations I have with, the, with people about this. Well, the Old Testament God is angry. I like the New Testament God. The Old Testament God, he's just... He's just always breathing fire down and destroying things. And, and I like Jesus. He's just love. And so maybe Jesus was trying to appease God to earn favor. Like, no, no, no. That's just, it, that's horrible thinking. God is the same from cover to cover. And in, in some respects, you could say the story of the Bible, it's God's wrath and God's love. It's never changed. Right? Like, God God isn't just angry and all of a sudden Jesus goes off and he's trying to earn God's favor to convince God to love us by dying on the cross. No, absolutely not. The cross doesn't gain back God's favor. Rather, God's favor was the very basis for Jesus' death on the cross. Romans 5.8 tells us that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, he loved us, right? He, he died for us. There's no division in the Godhead. There's no division between the wrath and the love of God. Love is not the opposite of wrath in theology. The wrath of God is an expression of his love and his deep attachment to his people. Listen, like if my children do wrong and I don't discipline them and they don't in some ways experience the wrath of dad, like how can I actually be loving them? I'm just letting it happen. But we got to understand something. Our rebellion of God puts us underneath the wrath of God that leads to one area because that's how severe our rebellion is. While we stay underneath the wrath of God, we're destined for hell. That's why this passage is important. Because if we're dead, that means we're hopeless. If we're dead, it means we're helpless. And there's nothing that we could do underneath the wrath of God. There's absolutely nothing. There's nothing we can do. We deserve it. Well, like, let's just make no and buts about it. It's just we deserve God's wrath. Our disobedience and our rebellion deserves it. Nobody likes to talk about hell. Nobody wants to talk about it because it's a difficult conversation because we believe we're inherently good. Start asking people, is there a heaven? Most people will say yes. Ask them if there's a hell. Most people will say no. Well, how do you know you're getting out? Well, I basically am good. Scripture says no, that's a, that's a lie. That's a lie from Satan. You're, you're present, but you're dead. That's the reality. But Brandon, why can't we just skip to the good stuff? Why can't we just talk about the love of God? Like, why, why can't we just go, Jesus loves me for this I know because the Bible tells me so. Like, why can't we just get there? Let's get over this. This is pessimistic. It's ruining my day. Church, for those of us who are saved, we need to remember just how far gone we were in the depths of his love. Otherwise, we won't place any value on the gospel. Otherwise, it'll just be something that we do, something we say we're part of. But like we got to understand if Jesus saved us and rescued us like and we understand how far gone we were. It should control every aspect of our lives. Like this is so important. We can't skip all of this heavy negative stuff like this is the reality. It's like doctors are, are very, very careful about making sure they get the right diagnosis so that they can prescribe the right treatment. I mean, we don't want to know the problem. We just want to know the solution. 
I, I would tell you, honestly, like 95%, not that I have a study on this, but roughly 95% of all people that I counsel, they don't want to talk about their problems. They want to tell me their problem, and then they want me to provide a solution right away. But I can't provide a solution to their problems until I've uncovered the heart of the issue. But they don't want to talk about the heart of the issue, and that's why most people don't follow through with counseling. Because it's uncomfortable to get that deep. And this is why Scripture pulls no punches. And to be honest, it's so refreshing that Scripture goes, listen, this is the reality of humanity. This is the reality of why we're at where we're at. Because, because we're dead. It's not trying to sugarcoat it. It's not trying to say, hey, we're all relatively good people. Let's just get along. It's saying, no, you're, you're dead. You're helpless. You're hopeless. There's, there's nothing you can do. And apart from God moving towards you, you're under his wrath. You're enslaved to the world. You're enslaved to Satan. And you're enslaved to the passions of your flesh, your body, and your mind. There's nothing you can do. Until you understand the problem, you will never understand and treasure grace. You forget the gospel and you forget the depths of where you were, you will have the problem that Jesus had to address the church in Ephesus in Revelation. You did this right, you've done that right, you held on to great doctrine, but I have this against you, you have abandoned your first love. When we forget how far gone we were, it's easy to slip away from our first love. I think about a story in Luke's gospel where this woman came and she busted into this party where the Pharisees were feeding, you know, Jesus and they had this dinner thing and they were trying to entertain Jesus and have conversation with Jesus. This, this woman comes in and she's a well-known woman, right? She comes in and she busts open this alabaster jar of perfume and she's weeping at his feet and, and cleaning her feet, his feet with her hair. And, you know, and the Pharisees think to themselves, if, if Jesus was a prophet, he would surely know what kind of woman this was. And Jesus goes, this is a great teaching moment. And he has this conversation. And the end of that conversation, he basically says this. She loves much because she's been forgiven much. If you love little, it's because you've been forgiven little. It's not saying, like, her sins were greater than yours. It's just that she understood the depravity of her life. Whereas you, Mr. Pharisee, you, you thought that you were relatively good and somewhat evil, and you just wanted those little evil sins committed. She understood to the core, I'm wretched. The Pharisee thought, I'm relatively good. When our love dwindles, it's because we have forgotten just how depraved we are, just how far gone we are, the fact that we are dead. We are spiritually dead. We are not inherently good. We are inherently selfish. In spite of all of this, this is why this is important. Have you ever heard this phrase, like this little story where it's like, um, you know, they say like, you're kind of like this person that's drowning in a sea of sin. You're drowning in a sea of sin and Jesus is in the boat and he sees you drowning and he throws out a life vest to you to save you so that way you can kind of get yourself into the boat. Like that's the cultural thought of saying, I'm basically good, but I'm struggling right now. The real story should be told this way. You're dead in that sea face down, floating because you're dead. Jesus comes and he has to grab your lifeless body from the water, yank you up into the boat and resuscitate you to breathe his life into you so that you could have life. Look at verse four. This is the way this describes it. But God, those in my opinion are the most powerful two words in all of scripture. You're dead and your sins and trespasses. This is the way you walked. You are enslaved to the world. You're enslaved. In fact, you are a follower of the devil. You're enslaved to the passions of your flesh. You're a son of disobedience. You're a child of wrath. There's nothing you can do. 
And here's why I'm telling you this, because God, he's the one who's rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Jesus, with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. It's him. He's the only solution and the only hope we have in this world. You've got to understand this. If you're just tuning in because you're looking for answers and you're looking for hope and you're not necessarily a Christian or following Jesus, listen, you've got to understand this is why the church exists. This is why the church talks about hope. It's because the world, mankind, is dead, alienated from God. No matter what system, no matter what structure we put in place, it's going to be inherently selfish. And it's only going to perpetuate evil. That's, that's the best we can do. But God sent his son Jesus, who knew no sin, who was perfect, who was innocent, who was blameless, died on the cross. And on that cross, he became our sin. He became sin, taking it all on him. He died for us. In fact, maybe it's better to be said this way. He died instead of us. He bore our sin in his place. And his death satisfied the wrath of God. If there is no wrath of God, then there is no need of salvation. But the fact that, and you would agree with me, is there evil in this world? Yes, and if there's a God, that God better be wrathful because otherwise we can't trust him. But this same God who has wrath towards evil is driven to love because of his wrath to save us. But God, you've been saved by grace and it's a gift that God has extended to you. And next week we're going to talk about this, how we take that gift of grace and we receive it by faith and we cling to it. It's by grace, which means it's open to every single person, not for any special group of people, not for them, that group, this privileged Society, no, no, it's for the whole world, all people. Because all people are dead. And so Jesus died for all people so that all people could have life. It's by grace you've been saved. So church, as I wrap up, how could we ever abandon the love of Christ? Now, speaking to you, church, those of you who follow Jesus, who received the gift of life, like I'm speaking to you, like how could we ever lose this love? We, we got to preach the gospel to ourselves. We got to remember that when we were dead, lifeless, face down in the sea, he came and pulled our dead bodies out of that water and breathed his life into us. We were helpless, we were hopeless, we were heading to hell. And he moved towards us. Do you love much? The way you love is a direct reflection by how you received his forgiveness. Church, this is, this is why we're in this series, because we need to wake up. We need to wake up to the beauty of the gospel. We need to come alive again and be like, oh my goodness. What a wretch. I can't believe he did this. What a great God. I need to tell other people about this. How could we ever become about anything else besides the gospel? Yes, it's important to be right about this and this and this, but we should forever be proclaiming the beauty of Jesus. And for you who might be watching who... It's just trying to make sense of the world. Maybe even just trying to make sense of your own life. I need you to hear me clearly. You're not inherently good, and I know that's not popular to say. It goes against everything in our culture. I, I, I know that. And trust me, even as I said it, I had this little thing happen. But if I were to tell you that you are inherently good, I would be lying to you and doing you a great disservice. 
you're inherently selfish. And even though you might not see it, you might not experience the fullness of your depravity, but you've got to realize that you're enslaved to the ways of this world. And if you're still in rebellion to God, that means you are a follower of Satan and you're part of his rebellion. And you're under his wrath. But God made a way to save you and to radically transform you. He redeemed you. He bought your life back with his own blood. And as you're going to see next week, and I encourage you to come back, that you will see the power of this resurrection, what that means. This is the only hope we have in this world. So I want to encourage you, if like something in this message is struck a chord in your heart and you need hope and you need something drastically to change in your life I want to encourage you if you've never received the gift of grace that God extends to you this morning is your morning I'm below there's going to be a little text here and you can text this number and say listen I, I want to receive Jesus I want to learn more about this we want to talk with you we will resource you. We will come alongside of you no matter where you're at. Please do that. But for those of us who believe Jesus, here's how I want to end. If you've got a Bible, turn to Psalm 51. And I just want to use this psalm as our prayer to close. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may justify it in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in sin. And in my sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, and let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And here it is. This is the, the verse I want us to be praying for. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Well, Father, I, I thank you for your word. And I just pray that wherever we are at, we would understand the reality of this world and yet then we would understand the beautiful reality of your grace. Lord, I pray that your message of salvation, your message of grace, your message of hope would be transforming lives this very morning. And God, I ask you to do this in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Hey, church family, um, earlier in the week, um, I told you that I was going to tell you about some staff updates and announcements that's going on. Um, I'm here with JJ, our worship pastor, and we want to give you what's happening um, lately within our staff culture. And so I'm going to have JJ share a little bit about what's been happening in his heart, and then I'm going to come back and share with you a little bit about what's happening within our staff. Yeah, so earlier this year, but really this conversation happened years ago, where Brandon and I would kind of talk about and just kind of exploring what some of the things that give me life. And one of the things that we discovered is that I, I do have this love and this admiration for telling people about Jesus. And Brandon said, you have the gift of evangelism. Uh, not in that voice, but in, an, in his Brandon voice. 
And so uh, realizing that gift, we began having this conversation about how I could start utilizing that gift. And one of the things I wanted to do was to kind of use that gift. And Brandon and I started to dream together and we kind of came up with this idea of like, hey, let's release me so that I can go into the city and begin to just tell people about Jesus. And if you even know some of the details of how I've even placed our worship band, it had an evangelism component to it. So I'd say at least a third of our worship team are people that I have already brought into the church from me just going out on Craigslist or playing with them in the city and bringing them to church. So guys like Terrence and um, Jeff, uh, Jeff uh, Stevens, a whole bunch of other guys that you guys already know and love, and Sam Witt. I mean, there's, there's just a whole bunch of guys. So I'm excited to continue to do that. So I am transitioning out of being the worship pastor here at Austin Oaks Church. And I'm going to go out and be like a local missions, um, kind of a city pastor. We're still kind of defining what that is. But really, I want to utilize my gifts and go out there and do that. So I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. I'm still here. I'm just asking for your prayer and support and for you to join me on how we can go into the city and tell people about Jesus. Yeah. And so he's going to be taking on a role that's sort of like a local missions pastor. Yeah. Looking at how do we equip our church to do the work of evangelism, to go out and take teams out into the city to do evangelism, but also thinking through like, hey, what do we do to serve the least of these? Like talking about maybe doing a food right. pantry. Yeah. Engaging in other areas where we can be meeting needs tangibly, like Clint Small down the street here, where mm -hmm. we've been doing uh, feeding families during COVID 19. And so we're excited about this, okay? This is something that was on my heart, and it's just always fun to see how the Lord starts to sync these things up. And so, what's good to know is that JJ is still on the team, he's just on a different seat on the bus. And so, when it comes to the worship pastor position, we've been looking at other candidates for some time because we knew this was happening. And so we were just kind of easing it slowly and just asking the Lord for what time and his purposes and all kind of stuff. And um, we're excited to announce to you that we extended an offer letter to our next worship pastor. Um, his name is Seth McConkie, and he accepted that. And in the days to come, we're going to introduce you to him. You get to learn more about him and also learn more about how you can partner with what JJ is going to be doing in leading our church to advance good in the city of Austin. So church, we love you. We thank you for this. And we also want to let you know, we take this role seriously. We want to steward your, your yes to Jesus in every way. And we want to also come alongside and equip you to come alongside us to do the work of ministry. And we do believe the best is yet to come. So that's that in an update. So pray for JJ, pray for Seth, and yes. pray for the transition to happen. And we believe that people are going to come to know Jesus in this time.